to It's Your Dime, a straight talk interview series presented by Shift Gold. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Bill Green. Bill is an assistant professor of political science at South Texas College. His claim to fame is casting a vote for Ron Paul as a member of the Electoral College. Bill is also an expert on constitutional tender. We start the interview talking about his experience in the Electoral College and the current movement to change the election process to a popular vote. We then shift gears and talk about the problems with fiat money, gold and silver as constitutional tender, how states can undermine the Federal Reserve's monopoly on money, and a common objection to the gold standard. Thank you so much for listening to It's Your Dime. Today I am here with Bill Green, and we're going to talk a little bit about constitutional tender, and uh, and we may talk about the Electoral College a little bit. How are you doing, Bill? Well, I'm doing well. How's it going, Mike? I'm doing fantastic. I appreciate you taking uh, a few minutes to talk with the uh, wonderful Shift Gold audience out there. Hey, for you, anything. I appreciate it. Well, Okay, so the first question I've got for you, and, and this is my basic opening question, is uh, who are you and why are you on my show? <laughs> Just your, your opportunity to kind of give a little bit of your background and, and uh, who you are and what you do. Uh, well, I am an assistant professor of political science uh, and the assistant chair of the political science department at South Texas College uh, down on the uh, border in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, and I, uh, uh, I teach government, I teach, uh, the constitution. Um, and I guess I'm on your show because of my work, uh, with uh, constitutional tender, uh, and on the uh, federal reserve. Awesome. Yes, indeed. So, uh, in, in the audience knows that I also work with the 10th amendment center and, you know, I've, I have worked together on, uh, on kind of a state based, uh, based state-based approach uh, toward uh, kind of attacking the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. uh, the problems that we have there. So we'll, we'll get into that for just a second. But I want to talk a little bit first about uh, probably your you're best known for being the guy who voted for Ron Paul in the 2016 election, uh, <laughs> otherwise known as the faithless elector. <laughs> so uh, why did you do it? Well, I did it because I could, basically. Um, I mean, I, I've been teaching about the Electoral College for you know 25 years, and so uh, I decided that uh, after all the political activism and so forth that I've also been involved in over the years, I wanted to uh, do something that I hadn't done before, but that I'd always wanted to do, which was uh, go for trying to be an elector in this electoral college that I had taught about for so often, since that's the people that actually do elect the president and vice president of the United States. So uh, so I got involved in the process and eventually was uh, nominated uh, in Texas to be uh, an elector and got to be an elector when uh, Trump won the popular vote in the state of Texas. So, so when I got in there, um, I did, you know, what I had planned to do all along, which was vote the way that the uh, that the founders and the framers of the Constitution had insisted that electors were supposed to vote, which was as a free agent. Right. Um, the idea being, uh, as Hamilton talked about uh, in Federalist 68, um, uh, that it's supposed to be people that are chosen um, within each state uh, for their ability to take a look at 
who's out there and who, in their opinion, would be the best person uh, in the United States to be the president of the United States. And so, uh, so that's exactly what I did. I got in there and I took a look at who was available <laughs> out there, and uh, and it was a pretty easy choice then. To, yeah, uh, no doubt. To, to cast my vote for Ron Paul. That's awesome. Um, and a lot of people don't know there were actually, I believe, ten faithless electors in that election, uh, and the majority of them were actually supposed to vote for Hillary. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just fact, actually was, found uh, that out the other day. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Uh, uh, I, I I honestly thought that. You know, I'll, I'll be one of those only, you know, electors to do this sort of thing in the election, and that was fine. Uh, but then it turned out you had um, one other uh, Republican elector that didn't vote for Trump, and then you had five uh, Democratic electors that didn't vote for Hillary. And I think that threw everybody off. So uh, it, it was it, it was one of the most interesting elections of our lifetime. I yeah, think. for sure. So uh, were you censored at all in Texas? Do they require you to vote with the uh with with your party or uh, I, I know some states that they actually will find faithless electors. Did anything like that happen to you? No, in Texas, uh, it's actually um, uh, still you know we're we're still allowed to vote for uh, whoever we want to. And we can do write-in voting if we want. But uh, in terms of uh, in terms of how what the response was after that, there was an immediate call for. Uh, a law to bind electors in Texas, like about 20 other states, uh, 29 other states. And um, and they tried, and I went and testified against all the electoral binding bills because they would be unconstitutional, in my opinion. And so, I agree. Uh, so we, we were actually able to stop that in the last session. And there's only been one bill introduced this session, and I think it's dead. Uh, so um, I think Texas is still set. But it's, it's eventually going to probably be settled in the uh, Supreme Court. There's a couple of cases advancing, both from Colorado and Washington, where the some of the other faithless electors were. Uh, and we'll see if that gets to the Supreme Court or not. I mean, I was... Uh, in Texas, what they do have is you are required to sign a pledge um, in order to be nominated as an elector from your party. But of course, then once you get to vote, once you get to the voting in the Electoral College itself, uh, you have to actually take an oath, and the oath is not to your party or to your party's nominee. The oath is to the Constitution of Texas and the Constitution of the United States. So my oath to the Constitution actually superseded any, you know, any party pledge right. that, was, uh, that was ever made. So what are your thoughts on the, uh, the move that we're seeing to uh, basically change the system so that it's a popular vote? I know that Colorado, uh, their governor just signed a bill that uh, requires all of the uh, electors in that state to go to the candidate who gets the national popular vote. And uh, I mean, if, if nothing else, I think it's pretty clear that it undermines the intent of the system. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I think it's, I mean, it's, it, there's a couple of things that are pretty obvious about it. Number one, it's an obvious just attempt to sort of go around the Electoral College, since they know that they can't get an actual uh, constitutional amendment uh, ratified to to abolish the Electoral College, that it would never fly. Right. So instead, they're trying to get this through uh, state by state um, to sort of, through a compact, through a, an agreement among these states, uh, to to throw their their electoral college votes to whoever wins the the, uh, the most votes nationwide. Right. But I think that the thing the other thing about that is it's it's an obvious 
ploy by Democrats just to try to to win again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're 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 so upset that they that they weren't able to uh, win through the electoral college that they want to get rid of that. But I think it I, I, again, it's one of those things where they're not looking at. Um, the the long term consequences and how that could negatively affect themselves. I mean, if they were to actually get this done, and we were to then have the next presidential election based on popular vote, I have no doubt that Donald Trump's campaign would simply shift its strategy and focus on winning enough in the popular vote, and they'd probably be able to do it. In which case, right. all of these democratic states would have to throw their electoral college votes to the republican <laughs> i think at that point they'd probably sue themselves yeah to, uh, exactly yeah it's interesting that the assumption is that things would go along just as they have if you completely change the system and i know tom woods has used the analogy before of, of the world series mm -hmm. and if the object was to score as many runs as possible over seven games you would have a completely different strategy in pitching uh, as opposed to trying to win, you know, four out of the seven games. So, you know, it's not like people would keep doing the same strategy when you change the the way the game is played. It's kind of a dumb thing. But, uh, you know, I made the point. I recently did a, uh, a, a talk on the Electoral College, and, and I made the point that what it really does fundamentally is it changes the way uh, the the system was intended to be set up and, and the right. states were the preeminent political society in the American system. And when you change to a popular vote, then you create this, this singular national entity. And, and I would say in effect, you know, it's just like you alluded to if, if, uh, if the folks in Colorado vote for candidate X and candidate Y wins the popular vote, then I would say that what you're doing is you're, you're negating the will of the people of Colorado and it, and it really changes the way you look at the, the fundamental structure of the U.S. system. And Well, yeah. I, I mean, basically it would be – I mean, I look at it, it would be one final nail in the coffin of federalism right. uh, in this country, uh, which really started with things like the 17th Amendment. Um, uh, well, it goes even further back to, to the war between the states, but mm – -hmm. Uh, but but really, that's uh, that's what they're attacking. And, and there's one more thing that just really bugs me about this whole thing, and that's that people keep thinking of electoral college votes as just some big bucket of votes right. in each state that they can just throw ever throw at whatever candidate they want to. And that was certainly never the intent of the founders. It was supposed to be these are real people that are casting their real votes um, based on you know their their deliberations and their uh, their understanding and, and their decisions. And what's happened since that time is people look at this as no, each state has this bucket of votes that they can then throw. Listen, when I was an elector in the electoral college, I was not part of a bucket of votes. I right. was a real human being. And that's the thing. Now, most electors, of course, are always going to uh, vote according to their party. I mean, that's that's how they get in there as electors. They're, right. they're real party people. But um, but that doesn't mean that you should bind them to that. They should still have the, that uh, free agency that the Constitution uh, and that the writers of the Constitution intended. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I'm not sure that a lot of people realize that popular vote was proposed – Sure. Rejected right. <laughs> during the the ratifying convention, or not during the ratifying convention, but during the Philadelphia convention, and there sure. were good reasons for it. You know, the exactly the, there were there were problems that the founders and their wisdom, namely, I, I think it was uh, I think it was uh, Charles Pinckney from South Carolina made the point that you know, in effect, with the popular vote, you're going to have the urban areas 
uh, lording over the rest of the country. And if you look at the way the popular vote plays out, that would certainly still prove true today. So. You know, yeah, exactly. there's, there's, a, there's a lot involved, more involved in that, and I think people – I think most people just have this knee-jerk, well, it's democracy, and, and they haven't really thought about the ramifications. But, well, let's talk about sound money a little bit because that's really, okay. that's really why we're here, although this is an interesting subject in and of itself and certainly something that's in the news. But um, you, you wrote a paper, Ending the Federal Reserve from the Bottom Up. Reintroducing competitive currency by state adherence to Article One, Section 10. So a little more constitution there. Um, before we really get into that and, and the strategy, though, let's just uh, let's back up and answer the more fundamental question. What's the problem with the fiat system that we have now? I mean, why should, uh, you know, a normal Joe Blow who's just going to work every day, why should they care uh, what kind of monetary system we have? I, I think that the, the average person should should care about it because it affects their money. I mean, it, it affects uh, the value of their money, meaning mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, the money that they have in their pocket from one day to the next can suddenly decrease in its purchasing power. Suddenly, for, you know, it's uh, today you're able to buy this much stuff with that with the, the dollars in your pocket, but tomorrow you're able to buy fewer things with those dollars, and next year it's even fewer things. And the reason for that is because there is this deliberate devaluing of fiat currency because they have groups like the Federal Reserve and others, they, they have the ability to do that when they simply inflate the money supply or uh, when they when they fix the interest rates so what they're doing is they are manipulating the value of the currency in the average person's pocket and it i mean it's beneficial when they do that it's beneficial to the the people at the top right the people get the money first but you know, the average Joe, by the time this all trickles down to them, they once again find out that even though they've maybe gotten a raise a little bit or, or you know, something, that suddenly they're still under the hammer. They're, they're still having trouble making ends meet. They're still having to pay more and more money for all these things because of the, the, the resulting inflation. So the average Joe ought to, ought to be concerned about uh, about their money and the fact that it's been turned all into fiat money, just creating money out of thin air, uh, because the average Joe is having their money stolen from them through this process of uh, of inflation. Right. You especially see it when you start thinking in terms of savings. You know, if I if right. I take a take ten bucks and put it under my mattress, and then twenty years pull that ten bucks out, well, I don't have a whole lot. Uh, in in terms of purchasing power, and I think it's important to note that this is a like you you said this policy is on purpose. You, know, you right. can you can listen to the folks at the Federal Reserve, and they're talking about we you know we need to have this two percent inflation. Uh, you know that's part of their mandate, and uh, which is really pretty absurd when you think about it. And you, know, you might think, well, two percent, well, that's not that big a deal. But then you know two percent every year over a 10 year span, then it, it starts to add up. So or over a hundred year span. Which well, yeah, exactly. And what is it? Something like 95% of the value of the, of the dollars eroded away since the federal reserve was uh, instituted in 1913. Exactly. And, and I think the, the problem is that people don't have a, a long-term view of how this works. They think, Oh, well, 2% a year, you know, I can, I can see that. But when you look at that long-term effect and the fact that, that our dollar has lost over 95% of its purchasing power, when I, when I show this to my students, Students in class, they get it. They they see that, and they suddenly, you know, the lights come on, and they're like, "Well, you know, why are they doing this to our money?" And 
you know, we, we can talk about all the reasons that they say they're doing it for, but but ultimately the, the end result is that our, our money loses its value and it heads down that road towards, towards what uh, Voltaire talked about, which is uh, that fiat money uh, inevitably uh, returns to its intrinsic value, which is <laughs> nothing. Exactly. I, I think an interesting way to illustrate the devaluation of money is to look at uh, the minimum wage in silver quarters. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. And, and of course, it fluctuates based on the price of silver. But uh, basically, uh, the minimum wage in the 1960s was uh, five silver quarters. Right. And if you take the melt value, the silver, and you know, at the time in, in 1964 and earlier, those quarters were made out of silver. If you take the melt value of the metal, uh, you end up with about $15. <laughs> so there's your fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage right there. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and it's very true that that the it's not the uh, it's not the minimum wage that needs to be fixed. It's 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 our money. It's the money exactly. So we talk about uh, we use this term constitutional tender. We use it over at the Tenth Amendment Center and, and and use that term as well. What does that mean? What is constitutional tender? Well, I sort of came up with that phrase uh, back in 2009 when I first started really looking into uh, this part of Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution, um, where it says that no state may uh, may make anything but gold or silver coin a tender in payment of debt. Right. So, uh, you know, I, when I teach federal government, I basically teach through the Constitution because that's sort of the foundation of that. It's kind of novel. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> – so when I get to Article One, Section Ten, well, here I got to that point, and I and I was just explaining to them because that's that's language that we don't use very much nowadays. Right. So I try to explain it to my students, and I say it it simply means that states are not allowed to offer an as an acceptable mode of payment, that is, to make a tender, to offer as an acceptable mode of payment, anything to pay off debts either owed by or to the state, they're not able to say this is acceptable to use for anything except gold or silver coins. Um, and so, you know, the idea of a tender, it means an offer. And right. so that's what they're, this is very specific. It's a restriction on the states. They are not allowed to use any other form of money uh, in any of their transactions except for gold or silver coins, or obviously, you know, what represents gold or silver. Right. So, um, so as I explained that to, you know, to my students, the students, they catch on to that then. Once you get the definitions down, they catch on. Mm-hmm. And so I had a student simply ask me, you know, why, uh, what's, a, what's the deal with this then? Are states doing this? Do states use gold and silver? I'm like, well, no. He said, so how many do then? Well, well none of them do. Well, then how are they able to do that? If the Constitution is very clear about this, did we pass an amendment to the Constitution that they don't they don't have to use gold and silver anymore? Well, no, they 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 just stopped doing that. <laughs> and instead, and the reason that they stopped doing it was because the federal government rejected using gold and silver anymore. They right. took us off the gold standard, they took us off the silver standard, they they moved completely to a floating fiat currency, and the states simply, you know, automatically followed suit because they were using what was called legal tender money that they had to use it. So right. people just didn't notice. Well, now we're noticing because now we've got to this point where over 95% of our money's value has been lost. And I think people are starting to wake up to that fact, and they're realizing that it's because of the Federal Reserve, and it's because of this fiat money system. 
Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, just to emphasize that point, the entire system really right now is unconstitutional because those right. federal that's, reserve that's, notes. That's what I wanted to call it constitutional yeah. tender. I mean, we, everyone talks about legal tender, but legal tender. Well, first of all, that's not even in the Constitution. That right. The federal government can can do that. But but in terms of constitutional tender, I wanted to emphasize that. When we say the word tender in the Constitution, we're talking about an offer of payment. And so if we want to do this constitutionally, and I, and I think the phrase was originally used uh, by Daniel Webster, mm -hmm. uh, Senator Webster, where he said, you know, the constitutional tender is the thing that must be preserved at all costs. Right. And what he understood was we need to not be moving into this fiat money uh, realm where we're just creating money out of thin air and it's not backed by anything, that that will result in hyperinflation, things that we've seen in the past. And so that's why I wanted to use this, this term of constitutional tender, because it, it is completely different than the unconstitutional form of tender, which is legal tender. Right. So one of the great things that Ron Paul did was really bring attention to the Federal Reserve. I mean, that's I think he kind of if if he didn't coin the phrase, he at least popularized in the Fed, right. uh, and and then of course uh, the the more moderate approach to that audit the Fed, which we've seen uh, some Rand and, and some others in Congress kind of still trying to carry that that bucket, but it doesn't seem like anything realistically that's ever going to happen in Washington D.C. I don't I don't think there's much um, stomach for actually addressing the the central bank. You've got a different approach, which is a bottom-up approach, which you talk about in your paper, uh, that you say can actually undermine the Federal Reserve's monopoly on money. But what is that strategy? I mean, can you, can you outline it in a, in a kind of a, a nutshell? What can states actually do? I mean, we've got this big central bank. Can a state really do anything? Sure. Um, and the reason I, I talk about it being from the bottom-up is because it really is a state-level approach. You're absolutely right that the federal-level approach is it's too centralized, and it's also too easy pickings in, right. in terms of the supporters of the Federal Reserve and the Fed itself. I mean, the Federal Federal Reserve has you know hired its own lobbyists to make sure <laughs> that they don't even get audited. Right. Uh, and so, so doing approaching this from a federal level, I think is. Uh, we have seen the results of it, and they just haven't been very positive. But in terms of going on a state-by-state -state approach, it's a it's it's a much simpler thing to do, and the opposition then has to be uh, very diffused um, mm -hmm. and has to sort of be all over the place. The idea is that each state can simply take what is given to them in Article One, Section Ten, which is a requi that requirement that mm -hmm. they can only use gold and silver uh, in their monetary exchange, gold and silver coins. Um, and they can simply you know, pass the, uh, the affirming legislation on that saying we can't use anything else. The Constitution doesn't allow us to use anything else. Therefore, we're not going to be using fiat money anymore. We're not going to be using Federal Reserve notes. If right. you have any kind of dealings with us, you are constitutionally required to use gold and silver coins. And uh, if that occurs um, and the states start doing this uh, constitutionally, doing it the correct way, uh, then, then what you'll start seeing is um, people having to sort of move to using constitutional money. Um, not that they wouldn't be able to use Federal Reserve notes. They could still use those, just not in their dealings with the state. Right. But because they're having to deal with the state so much, which we all have to, 
um, they're going to, you know, there's going to have to be ways to to start being able to use the the constitutional forms of money, and those steps are already being taken. Those uh, that pathway is already being laid through uh, through all sorts of things like like gold and silver uh, um, uh, vaults um, that states like Texas are setting up uh, through companies that are that are have Visa cards that uh, are debit cards based on silver being in your account rather than fiat money. Right. And so as that begins to happen uh, and people start, it, it doesn't take long for people to realize that, uh, okay, if I, have, if I have silver in my account versus if I have fiat money in my account, um, from month to month and from year to year, I can see that my money that is based on silver is actually buying more things from right. year to year than the, the money that is based on nothing. Uh, and so... Uh, it's a it's a matter of getting that whole legal tender requirement sort of out of the way, uh, which does this uh, what we call Thiers law, which is sort of a reverse Gresham's law, um, which uh, w what that means is that the, the good money is going to be able to drive out the bad money because the government, the federal government, isn't able to force people to use bad money anymore for all things. And I think that's that's the, the, the beginning of the end for the Federal Reserve. As people realize that their money is more valuable when it's not you know, based on thin air, uh, then the Federal Reserve notes are going to be used less and less until uh, eventually people are going to say, we don't really want this anymore, and it can go away. Yeah. I think we're in an interesting time technologically, too, because you know, even 10 years ago, people would say, well, we can't really do that because you can't carry around a bunch of gold, and, and you know, you can't there there was a there was a physical limitation to that and that's virtually disappeared with the uh with the advent of of electronic transfers and electronic banking uh you know i know there's yeah some... in fact uh 10 years ago is exactly when we first introduced uh the constitutional tender act in georgia and that was the argument that was being used i yeah. don't want to carry around a bunch of gold and silver and you know we we were trying to explain that no there's a there's ways to do this electronically well Ten years later now, it's 2019, and you know, people don't carry money around to begin with. They, everybody carries around their debit card exactly. and so forth. And so, uh, and we're at that point now where it is nothing to be able to simply swipe your card, and it's just the behind the scenes. Well, what is that card pulling from? Is it pulling from fiat money, or is it going to be pulling from? And I have um, a, a, a debit card where when I swipe that. The bank um, is in connection with a silver vault, and automatically it's pulling from the value of my silver rather than from the value of, uh, or the lack of value of fiat money. And I can do that, and it's all done behind the scenes, and I don't notice the difference, but I do notice when the money that I do have in my account is actually retaining its value rather than losing its value. Right, and I know there are uh, at least two companies that do the same thing in gold there's uh gold money which is based mm -hmm. out of canada and then uh united precious metals i think it's upmc which is a utah company which interestingly utah is one state now they didn't go so far as to say that we're only going to take gold and silver as uh, legal tender but they did take the step of uh officially making gold and tender uh, gold and silver legal tender in that state and you've seen a company like upmc come in and take advantage of that. So, you know, even taking the, that, that first step, even if they don't go the whole way and, uh, you know, say we're not going to take Federal Reserve notes anymore, at least opening the door. Uh, because in a lot, of, a lot of states, it's not 
gold and silver is treated like a commodity as opposed to a uh, as, as opposed to money and uh, yeah I, and these are beautiful first steps that states are starting to take now uh, where you're seeing states that are saying look these are coins and in fact they are legal tender coins because right. even the federal government uh, has said you know, this silver coin is a le is legal tender this mm -hmm. gold coin is legal tender it's just that it, they put ridiculous <laughs> right. base value yeah $50 on a on a $1,300 coin. <laughs> so, um, but what the states are doing is starting to recognize, look, this is, you know, we're going to recognize this as legal tender, but we're going to recognize it based on the actual value of the silver, the gold. Um, and they're removing, you know, taxation Taxes, yeah. uh, on, the, on the exchange of, uh, of those types of money. Um, those are just incredibly fantastic first steps. And now as we're starting to see First with Texas, and I think Utah is uh, proposing it now, and other states are looking to follow suit when you have these depositories that are state depositories um, that uh, you can, uh, like here in Texas, I, I monthly deposit to my depository account. I mm -hmm. put silver in there, and it, within the next uh, year or two, they're going to be, uh, it's going to be almost like a bank. Yep. You, you can just simply use it in that way. And again, I think these are great first steps, and uh, and in the end, I think it's the way to, uh, to to truly nullify the Federal Reserve Act from the state level. Yeah, that's an, and it's an approach that we've been supporting, and in, in, uh, you know, from from my putting on my Tenth Amendment Center hat, we appreciate the work that you've done to to kind of lay the philosophical groundwork. And uh, and and there's some folks uh, folks in Wyoming, uh, uh, in Arizona. Uh, they've taken a number of steps in terms of, of eliminating the taxation yes. and, and whatnot. So, like you said, we're seeing those steps. Um, so let me ask you this question. I was talking to a guy the other day, actually, and uh, uh, he's a local politician here, and, and we were meeting about some some local issues. But he noticed that I have an in the Fed button on my uh, on my book satchel. And uh, he said, oh, in the Fed, he must be a Ron Paul fan, you know, because like I said, people associate that. And he goes, yeah, I always, I always liked some of Ron Paul's ideas, but he was a little kooky and out there on some of his uh, economic ideas. And I said, well, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by that? You know, what, what specifically? Trying to get a, get a beat on where this guy was coming from. He said, well, this whole idea of a gold standard, you know, that's just really not possible. There's not enough gold. Now, what would you <laughs> say to somebody who, who, would, who would tell you, because I said that's part of the point, you know, that we don't want the government just to be able to expand uh, the money supply to win, because really that's what's funding all of the wars and, uh, you know, all of the uh, out of control $22 trillion plus worth of, of spending. I mean, that's all made possible by mechanizations of the Federal Reserve. But um, his his point was that, you know, if if you had a gold standard, then gold would have to be like – ten thousand dollars an ounce and that's just not practical how, how would you how would you address somebody that just has that kind of knee-jerk reaction when you start talking about using gold and silver as money well, well you know it's when i've been uh, um, asked is there enough gold or is there enough silver um for us to be able to uh, uh to, to back the dollar with uh with those um, the answer is, of course, there is. If, if it's truly a market-based system that we're talking about, if it's not the government saying that it's this much gold or silver per dollar, but if it's the market that's that's able to do that, then if it takes ten thousand dollars to uh, to to get that ounce of gold, then that's what gold is supposed to be worth. Uh, right. That's the actual, you know, the value, the purchasing power of gold. Um, there, there is exactly 
enough gold and silver to meet demand <laughs> uh, if, if you allow the market to, to do its to do its magic it's um uh, so, so it, it's not a matter of now if the if the government is able to say well you know that gold that's that one ounce gold coin is only worth fifty dollars um, then yeah you're probably going to have trouble um, you know, matching up the amount of gold to the amount of dollars uh, that are available but uh, but of course, you'd want to just just remove that. And it, I mean, if the government had to be in there at all, it could be under the constitutional way, which is uh, um, that the Congress can actually determine uh, the value of the dollar in terms of what amount of silver can go into the dollar, for example. Right. Uh, and that's what the Constitution specifically says. Congress can do that. Uh, but not in terms of the purchasing power of the dollar. That's that's something that was supposed to be left up to the market. Right. I think most people can't conceive of a system without the government. I mean, I'm, I almost feel like people believe that the government creates money. Yeah. And, and they don't realize that it's just a representation of value. It's a way of exchanging goods and services without having to actually, you know, I don't have to hand you an apple in order right. to get an orange. We've, we've created a way to facilitate exchanges. I don't think people look at that. I think that pe people look at money as uh, as kind of having a value in and of, it, of itself, and they don't recognize that it's really just a way of transferring uh, actual things. Uh, yeah, and, and people, I mean, I, I think there's just been a real lack of, of education, economic education, civic education, and so forth uh, in this country. And some of it's been deliberate so that they, they're able to continue to do these sort of things. But, uh, you know, it's it's hard accounting for. I mean, people like blood sausages. You know, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a that's a great discussion and a great overview. And if people are interested, um, I'm going to link to your paper on uh, on the show notes page, and I'll also link to some of the work that's going on over at the Tenth Amendment Center in this area. And we've been reporting on some of the the uh, the state bills as well on the Shift Gold website, mm -hmm. which is shiftgold.com/news. I've got one more question for you. This is a key and very important question, which is really the determining factor on whether you will ever be able to come on the show again. <laughs> so typing, right? Yeah. When you type, do you put two spaces after the last word at the end of a sentence? It depends on if I'm typing online or not. If I'm typing online, I know it doesn't matter because it's only going to give me one space. <laughs> But if I'm typing a paper, for example, I can't break my old habit. I put two spaces after that period. Well, okay, I'll give you 50%. <laughs> this is my— I, I'm old school. Though. This is my great— pet. You probably took typing at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This this is yeah, my, my great— year of high school. <laughs> yeah. Th this is my great pet peeve of uh, of editing is when I have to go back and get rid of all of those spaces. Now, what, but what you said, if you're not doing it online, then it really wouldn't be an issue for me. And a lot of people don't realize that there's a reason, uh, the way the typewriter fonts are, you really need those extra spaces to make it readable. Yep. Uh, and the, uh, the computer corrects for that. So when you're typing online, you don't really need to worry about it. But So as long as I don't have to edit it, I'm all right yeah. with it. So I guess, <laughs> I guess we'll give you a pass on that. So before we close out, are there any uh, any links or anything that you would like to give people if they want to follow what you're doing? Uh, uh, well, def definitely. Um, uh, 
they can go to the uh, uh, to the Tenth Amendment Center uh, and just you know click on the Sound Money uh, links because that's where I think the the best information available today is uh, on a lot of the in terms of the activism that's happening in state right. after state. Uh, uh, it 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 does my heart good to continue to see uh, uh, to see it pushed forward by the uh, the Tenth Amendment Center. I am. Uh, in the process of, uh, of actually writing a book called Nullify the Fed that's uh, all about the uh, constitutional tender. My hope is to have that done within the year. Uh, we'll see. That's exciting. <laughs> I want to get it done before it's too late. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm with you there. All right. Well, that's outstanding. I re- again, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, appreciate all you do. It's it's nice to know that there's a professor out there that actually teaches the Constitution. Um, I, I'm I'm afraid that that's not a uh, something that happens a lot out no, there in the world of academia. The, uh, what's being taught is not exactly what the uh, Constitution actually says. So that's unfortunate. Mo- mostly, you get constitutional law, which is what a bunch of politically connected lawyers have said over the last 250 years. Uh, exactly. Which doesn't necessarily have any correlation with what the uh, ratifiers and in the drafters of the Constitution intended. So, anyway, exactly. appreciate the the great work you're doing, and again, thank you for taking the a time to be on the show. Hey, y'all, keep up the great work too. Thanks. You've been watching It's Your Dime, an interview series presented by Shift Gold. For more information on investing in gold and silver, talk to a Shift Gold precious metal specialist today at 1-888-GOLD-160. That's 1-888-465-3160. Or visit us on the web at shiftgold.com. You can keep up with all of the latest precious metals news at shiftgold.com news. And tune in each week to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap Podcast. This is your host, Mike Meharry. I appreciate you watching, and I'll talk to you again next time.